welcome to No Page Unturned, the podcast where Christina, Steph, and myself, Josh, go in-depth discussing books, mainly focusing on those written by BIPOC and LGBTQ plus authors. Hello, everybody. Today, we are extremely excited for another author interview here on No Page Unturned. As always, I am Steph, and my pronouns are she, her. Today, I'm joined by Alexander Rowland, who is here to talk about their upcoming release, A Taste of Gold and Iron. This book made me extremely sweaty, and I hope it will do the same to you. <laughs> uh, Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I love to hear this book made me sweaty. Isn't that every author's dream? Just people <laughs> sweating over your books left and right, for sure. Yeah. I was reading it at work, and there was a few times where I was like, this is, not, <laughs> this is inappropriate. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, it was it was uh it was a real fun fun time. Um so yeah, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and how you got into writing? Sure thing. Uh so as you said, my name is Alexandra Roland. My pronouns are they them. Uh I am from Western Massachusetts. I'm a fantasy author. Uh A Taste of Golden Iron is going to be my eighth book, uh if you count my self-published works in addition to my traditionally published works. So, uh it's definitely very exciting to see all the excitement that's been building for it and to already be hearing early feedback from uh, from early readers about uh, how much they've enjoyed it. Uh, a Taste of Golden Iron is the, kind of the book of my heart. Uh, it's taken six years and seven drafts to uh, write. Wow. So uh, it's it's kind of a, amazing and surreal to be at the, the end of the road and uh, so close to publication. Um, Wow. I, I, you asked me other questions. This may happen a couple times because I have ADHD. Uh, so I, I'll have to say like, oh, right, questions. Other half of that question. Whoops. Uh, I got into writing when I was, um, well, I decided to be an author when I was about 11 years old and sort of always nice. uh, just like kept a hold of that. And of course, like when you are young or in high school or college and you're an English major, uh, people are like, oh, are you going to be a teacher? It's like, no, 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 I'm going to be a writer. Uh, and it obviously like they, they were very supportive, but it was that kind of reserved, uh, 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 supportiveness where it's clear, like they don't quite believe you. Um, but yeah, it, it was always just like the one thing that I wanted to do. Uh, and I don't really have any other marketable skill sets. So that's fortunate. <laughs> fortunate to be here. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, so so six years, you said, mm -hmm. for this book. So, yeah. you know, tell tell us that story. You know, where how did you start? Where How did you get to where you are now? That's, that's quite the journey. Yeah, so um, the trope of fealty and feelings, like the... the noble lord or the worthy lord and his his loyal vassal uh and then they fall in love is kind of my favorite trope of all time uh you know you see it in mythology and uh like occasionally you get delicious glimpse of it in in movies or books and but nothing i had ever seen was exactly how i wanted it to be uh, like what the, it wasn't exactly the story that I wanted. So it was one of those, gosh, I guess I have to do this myself <laughs> sort of, <laughs> sort of situations. Um, so it, it was really kind of a journey of self discovery because once I decided, like, I really want to write a book about like this, my favorite trope, uh, 
I it sort of developed into how many of my favorite things can I cram into one book? How can I make this like a chocolate cake of self-indulgence uh, <laughs> and then eat the whole thing? Uh, maybe other people will also like that thing. Uh, that would be great, but mostly this chocolate cake is for me. <laughs> uh, and so, so part of the seven, the seven drafts that it took was that, um, it was kind of like refining the, and, and distilling the ideas that I liked, uh, and, and keeping just that, that shining core of the thing that I loved. Uh, and it took some experimentation. It took, introspection and a lot of questioning about like, well, what does this trope do? And uh, why do I like it so much? And what could be tweaked or changed about it so that I like it even more? Uh, and across those six years, the, the really magical experience that I had with this book was that it never got tedious. And I think with another book, seven drafts, like I might have abandoned it or gotten distracted along the way and turned to a different project. But, um, it, it was never a painful experience and it was never a tedious experience to have to, uh, face the, uh, that sort of situation of like, well, I have a complete manuscript here, but it needs like a massive overhaul and an entire, entirely new plot. So I have to start over, right? That's always a scary thing for an author to, to face. But um, with this one, like it wasn't, it wasn't ever a, um, a emotionally tough thing to do. Uh, and by the end of it, I kind of got like sort of fondly, like affectionately, oh, you're doing this again, aren't you? Guess I have to do another draft. Uh, and I used to tell people that I got paid in joy long before I ever, I ever sold the book. Um, just because of like how much, um, like how much pleasure I got in spending time with this book and these characters. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's very gratifying to see people, other people getting, getting excited about it as well. Awesome. Uh, you chose a Turkish inspired setting for the book, mm. um, in sort of this European inspired world. How do you, you know, when, when adapting a real life place to a fantasy place, what kind of decisions do you make? What do you keep the same? What do you change up? How much do you let that influence bleed over into uh, the fantasy side? Yeah, of that's a great question. Um, I love questions about world building. I wouldn't say that the whole world setting is European inspired per se. Uh, it's the the same world setting that all of my fantasy books are are set in, and gradually. Um, like hopefully as long as they keep publishing me, um, uh, as long as people keep tolerating me, uh, I'll, I'll keep exploring more and more of, of the world. So I would say it's a world inspired world because I want to have, uh, eventually, uh, that kind of breadth of texture and experience and, and, um, colorfulness and, and vividness from all over the world. Uh, sometimes that might be like inspired by a real world culture as a golden iron somewhat was. Uh, and sometimes that might be made up out of whole cloth, uh, with golden iron in particular. Um, I've always been really interested in like the history of, uh, the middle East in the medieval period and, um, uh, the, the question that you had was, uh, about like 
balancing how much influence there is, right? Um, so I've, I kind of feel like there's three things that, um, that my world building really relies on and, uh, to sort of give a sense of place and to associate, uh, a fantasy setting with, uh, like kind of align it with a, uh, a real world, world culture. Because of course there's a big danger of cultural appropriation and, um, you don't, or, and, and you obviously that's something that you want to avoid uh, at all costs. Um, so I rely on language because everyone communicates. I rely on food because everyone eats, and I rely on uh, clothing because everyone adorns their body. Um, those are like human universals that you can always like count on and, and build a bedrock on. Um, so for those three things, I was drawing um, a great deal from the middle of the Ottoman Empire around uh, the 1500s. Um, for things that are more, that might be more what you usually think of in terms of culture, like religion, uh, those are made from whole cloth because things that are, are deeply spiritually meaningful like that, I feel more like that's a, a harder and riskier area to, to move in. Um, so for religion, that is more fantasy and original. Uh, I did a lot of research about the, uh, the city of Istanbul in the, uh, the medieval period, uh, because like it was such a center of trade and economics has obviously such a huge part to play in this book with the coin counterfeiting plot and the, um, the fact that, uh, the, the nation of Arasht is, uh, a merchant empire. Uh, and so they, they are one of the wealthiest na nations in the world. And most of their, uh, power on the political stage is, comes from, from money and, and trade. Yeah. So, uh, one of the things I, you know, really liked is, and it, like, I hesitate to even call touch tasting magic because it's, it's mm. almost not. It's really just like a, an extra sense that a lot of these uh, characters have. So, you know, how did you develop uh, the idea of touch tasting and what made you decide to keep the quote unquote magic low key? Yeah, this is something that I've been sort of like thinking about recently and like, like, what do I like about the uh, the low key magic systems? And um, do I want to explore a magic system that's a little bit more flashy next time? Um, I honestly don't remember, like, the actual process of developing touch tasting. I would call it magic, um, because it goes, like, it is, it is a sense, it's sort of like synesthesia for metals, right? Like, you touch a, you touch a metal and you're able to determine what metal that is. Uh, which sounds like a, with this one, the one thing that I do remember was that I was kind of going for the goal of like, what's the absolute smallest magic system that I can create? <laughs> like, like the simplest and most straightforward one. Uh, and it does sound simple, uh, on, on face value, but also I wanted it to tie in directly with the plot of the book, um, or rather one of the two plots, because there's the romance plot and then there's the, uh, coin counterfeiting plot. And that very much simplified what lengths the characters would have had to go through to determine whether a coin is counterfeit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I 
an exciting scene of going to the metallurgist. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so thrilling. Exactly what everyone wants to wants to read. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't have been that difficult. Like there is a scene in the book where uh Kado, the the prince, the main character, is weighing coins on a scale. Uh because for many uh for most of the medieval period and into the even into the, the Renaissance and beginning of the modern era, uh, gold was the heaviest metal that we knew of. And so you would be able to tell fairly easily uh, if a coin was counterfeit. But I wanted it to be basically instantaneous uh, if you had access to uh, to this, this counterfeiting. Um, and also it encouraged the counterfeiters to be more subtle and to, you know, try different things. And um, it's... Different people have different degrees of this this magic system. So some people are not as talented with it as others, and it's a fairly rare skill to begin with. Uh, so obviously that ju- just cuts out like a lot of the complexity. And uh, when someone is able to just like touch the metal and know is this counterfeit, if they're sensitive uh, sensitive enough at uh, this skill, uh, because they can detect all the different. Uh, components of what is in this this piece of metal and i I love the way you you had them describe it you know Mm. like sunshine and Ah, honey and it was very it reminded me a lot of like wine tasting yeah yeah um that's kind of how i i brought like the the thing about synesthesia into it because like when people are strongly synesthetic you know everyone has their own sense of what um like how that manifests for them. Uh, and so there are, are synesthetes who associate colors with letters and numbers. And uh, everybody has their own, like what the letter J or the number nine is, what color is associated with that. And it's going to be different for every person. Uh, and so I kind of modeled it the same way. Uh, sometimes uh, for some people, those sense impressions are going to, uh, in the magic system, uh, are going to be based on like personal experiences, like if they have a strong memory associated with a particular metal. Uh, and sometimes it's just going to be kind of like what their brain decides to, to build connections mm-hmm. uh, between. So uh, this book is full of uh, fantastic characters. And, you know, to the point where, uh, you know, once you cut, I, you know, once they're all introduced and kind of you get to um, uh, some of the scenes later, like I was just cackling <laughs> laughing because like you, you do a great job of like setting up all these different personalities and then they all kind of get like stuck together mm-hmm. for a little while. And it's just so good. So yeah. Who is your favorite character? I mean, I love all of them for, for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, is something that, um, again, like something that I really like, cause this is a book of all my favorite things, right? Um, I, I really like it when books allow characters to experience the full spectrum of human emotion right uh like not just like tension and angst over the plot but also like breaking up tension with moments of humor or mischief or telling jokes to each other because that's what people do um so i obviously kato is is very close to my heart just because like i also have uh anxiety uh my anxiety isn't as severe as his is uh and it's much more controlled now that I'm on ADHD meds the last, the last couple of years. Uh, that's been a huge help. Like I have had panic attacks myself and um, anxiety was something that I was struggling with for a long time. Um, 
And I was saying the sort of things that Kado sometimes says, uh, like I used to say, oh, I don't have anxiety. I'm just high strung. So, so getting to like walk him through the process of like doing that self-examination and starting to face his anxiety and think of it as a separate thing that his brain is doing to him rather than an inherent part of his personality. Um, like that was, that was very, uh, cathartic for me in many ways. And I have a lot of like, like tenderness and sympathy towards him, uh, for the fact that he's still in the middle of like this difficult personal journey. Um, and this might be something that he struggles with for a long, long time because his, uh, culture doesn't have a modern view of, uh, mental health as, or as, as we would describe it. Uh, and he doesn't have access to, uh, the sort of medications and ways of dealing with it that we have now. Uh, I hope one day he will go to therapy, uh, as, <laughs> as the love interest Evermer, uh, recommends to him at, at the end of the book. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, to, to be fair, I did give him access to some, some fantasy therapy if he wants it. Um, and it was, yeah, it was a great scene. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. But also like, like the, the step of, of deciding like, Hey, I need some help. I need to like get to that therapy and reach out for that thing that's available to me, uh, is a whole nother step on that sort of personal journey. Um, I love to, to continue like rambling about how much I like my characters. Uh, <laughs> uh I love Evermer because like, he also goes through like a really, um, huge personal journey of shifting his entire worldview and having his entire like approach to everything uh, rattled by his experiences in the book, um, and learning to be more gentle and understanding and caring, learning to see the world with more nuance instead of just like having it black and white. Um, uh, so that's, that was like the tenderness in my heart for him. And of course, like Tadek, like I cannot ever speak about how much I love Tadek. Does everyone <laughs> love Tadek? Possibly. Is Tadek everyone's favorite character? Very, very likely. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really did like that, you know, Tadek in the beginning certainly could have ended up being a villain mm. character, you know, like the, the, the love triangle yeah. kind of vibes and, uh, and ultimately was not. And like, it did go on his own journey and was by the end of the book, like I really like, yeah, I, I really enjoyed him. And I Thank was like, you. no, he's great. He is. He is great. I mean, and like he, he starts off. I wanted to like avert the trope and I wanted to do some unexpected things there. This is like a small spoiler for, for Tadek's character journey, but um, like he starts off very much coded as like the, the other one, right? Like the other love interest, the ex. Uh, yeah. And, and our expectations from media is that the ex is going to turn out to be evil, like you said, or, or otherwise like sort of just fade into the background and, and wander off as the romance takes more, more prominence. Um, and I, I wanted to avert that trope because I realized like I have never, I, I've never read a book or like heard, I don't have enough story models in my head, uh, about people being able to remain friends with their ex and being able to build a friendship and build a new kind of like important relationship with someone after your old, uh, romantic or sexual relationship has, has broken off. Um, so I wanted to explore that and I wanted to like do something different and 
um, that we haven't seen very much of. Um, there was one point where I was considering having the love triangle uh, resolve into polyamory, but I feel like we have like we have stories about that. And so right, we, yeah. we have so many fewer stories about like intentional friendships and like I want to like this is this is going to be hard for both of us. This is going to take work from from both of us, but I, I really want to take the time and make the effort to build something new with you. Uh, that's something that I, I hadn't seen or at least hadn't seen enough of. So we, we you kind of already covered some of this, but um, one of my other questions was, uh, you know, so this is obviously my opinion, but for me, the real villain of the book was anxiety. Mm, absolutely. So you know, how did you approach writing a villain that doesn't get defeated? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, I think it was just with um, like empathy and compassion. And um, gosh, that's a good question. I'm just sitting here like, wow, how did I, how do I do that? Yeah, well, because I, th I think it was really important that at the end of the book, like, Kato wasn't magically better. He wasn't, right, and exactly. And he had this conversation where he's like, I'm always going to be like this. Yeah, yeah, because, like, that's real. I, I mean, I think this goes back to what I said about, like, allowing characters to be fully human, right? Like, my anxiety is never going to be gone, it's just controlled, Uh because like sometimes you're just born with a certain kind of brain chemistry or you have a certain kind of trauma that's always going to be with you. It doesn't make you any less of a person. Uh, but like you can go on a journey of like getting better at working with the tools that your brain has given you. Uh, because as we also see in the book, there are moments when the anxiety that Kato has is really useful for him and is a tool. Uh, because it means that in a crisis, he is fairly chill because uh, he's he's used to being terrified all the time. He's used to like having all of the monsters be in his own head. So when they're not in his own head, that's actually kind of a relief. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, and like I, I have experienced that as well. Um, I yeah, like like you you said, like, how do you how did you approach writing a book where the villain isn't vanquished? Right. And I think the key is that. Uh, that last word vanquished, uh, because we ex we do expect villains to be like completely defeated and for them to be gone forever. Um, but you know, I think that Kato kind of has an approach of like learning to be more empathetic with himself as well, and learning to like treat his anxiety gently and not being afraid of it because it's like a a small sort of scared animal in his head. And so learning to like be okay with it and be able to like soothe that part of it, um, I think was kind of like, like part of the, the important thing for me there as well. So one of the things I love most about this book is that you did not provide any in-world justification <laughs> For the, I'm going somewhere good. Okay, 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 okay. <laughs> for this, like, um, lack of heteronormative gender roles and binary. You know, you you don't have uh, an exposition conversation where somebody explains, like, the uh, is it the, is it pronounced Oriasalar? Uh, Oriasalar, yeah. Oriasalar, yeah. Like nobody has like a side conversation about like the Oriasalar or why there's a female sultan. Like you don't need to explain them away. Because they don't, they don't need to be. They like, don't need things, to be explained. They yeah. just exist. And I, I think that's really wonderful that you just like didn't, you're like, no, like 
these people exist in the real world. They exist in my world. I don't need, they don't need a justification, a cultural explanation. Yep. Yep. So, you know, what, what made you decide to approach it this way? Did you ever consider taking any other route with that? Um, you know, I, I, when you were reading the question originally, like I giggled because, um, like I've seen, this is something that's, I've, I've seen kind of like mixed reactions to, mm-hmm. uh, and like people having, having mixed reactions, uh, doesn't bother me at all. Like everybody has a different experience of all books. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's fine. Uh, and I, I guess like some people really like that explanation and some people are like, oh, I love that I just got like suplexed in like through the coffee table into the deep end with the world building. <laughs> no explanations of anything anywhere. Uh, you just got to glean everything from context, which is how I like to read fantasy books, because like when a, a new concept is is put in front of me, I, I love the experience of going, oh, what is this? Like, what does it mean? Like, what are all the kind of implications of it? Um uh, and sort of like, like having that little mystery to work out on my own. Uh, I find that very engaging. Um, so I guess that's one level of it. And part of it was just like, you shouldn't need an explanation about why there's a female sultan. There yeah, is like, like, like there, there just is why, yeah. like, yeah. Um, there's a third gender in this world or in this, in this particular nation, uh, like their culture has a inbuilt that's just how they see genders. Like they have a, a three gender structure. Uh, and there are other nations in the world that have other kinds of, of views of that. Um, there are some that have a, a gender binary. There's uh, in my, uh, one of my other books, Acquire of Lies, uh, that setting has a six gender system. Uh, so it was, it was building it that way was just a, um, I, a, just a choice of like, I like exploring different ways that people come up with for making sense of the world. Uh, and this is one aspect of how we make sense of the world. Um, and there's going to be different problems in that setting because of course, like even with a three gender system, there might be someone who's like, I don't identify with any of these, like, like, um, hopefully like, a fewer than are, are in the real world. Um, uh, but like there, there's still going to be people who live outside of that. There's still going to be people who are like, well, I was assigned this gender at birth, but actually like, I want to, uh, be like trans people will still exist in this setting. There's still going to be people who are like, I was born as a, uh, or I was assigned male at birth, but I actually want to be uh, non-binary or so on and so forth. What was the original question? Oh, it was, it was uh, like how I, um, like how I decided not to explain the queer world building, right? Yeah. Just vibes, just pure vibes, really. Like, I don't, yeah. I don't have a, a good answer for that beyond like, I felt like I wanted to. <laughs> I mean, honestly, that's great. Like, like I said, like, think queer people don't require justification. Yeah. Yep. You know? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm queer and I was like, no, either you know that queer people exist or like this book might not be for you because I'm not here to explain that to to people who don't have that information already. It's like they're there. Yep. They're there. Yep. Moving on. Anyway, back to the kissing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Actually, yeah. And that that actually leads great into my next question, which is let's talk sexy, sexy. All right. So yeah, this this book got me like hot and bothered in a very delightful way. Excellent. So what what is your approach to writing a spicy scene? 
Um, that's a great question. So I like, gosh, you're just very good at this interviewing thing. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm very impressed. Uh, I learned to write sex scenes from my friend Freya Mosk of uh, a, a Marvelous Light. Uh, I had a podcast with her for several years, Be the Serpent. Um, and so she put me through Freya Mosk's school of writing sex real good. Uh, and the thing, the big takeaway that I, I had from this was uh, that a sex scene is almost never 99.99% of the time a sex scene is not about the mechanics it's about the feelings right um it is about like what doing this is changing about the characters relationships and how they feel about breaking the tension in this way uh or sometimes you can use a sex scene to ramp up the tension um uh, so that was kind of the, the thing that I kept in, like at the top of my mind when I was writing all of these scenes is just like, how can I make the feelings in this, in these scenes as intense as possible? Uh, because when you read a book, you kind of like, when, or even like when in real life you see someone experiencing a strong emotion, uh, your brain just naturally like wants you to feel some of that emotion as well. And so writing the emotions really, really vividly in a sex scene means that that's going to have so much more of an emotional impact on the reader than it would be if it was just like, and then they made out their tongues battled for dominance. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Did that answer the question? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Uh, so the, the book ends on a bit of an open note. Do you have any plans for, you know, a sequel? Uh, you were saying that, you know, you most of your books take place in this world. Do you have a sense of what's next for the world? Yeah. Um, so for a sequel, I definitely have, like, ideas about what they do after this uh, as to whether, like, what happens with the sequel, if it ever gets written, like, that's still kind of up in the air because I've got so many other projects going on. Um, personally, I would love to, like, return to the setting and these characters that I, I love so much. Um, and uh, uh, as for the, the rest of the world, I have, like I said, I have a couple other uh, things going on. I've got a uh, independently published uh, series called the Seven Gods series, which is set in, like, a more Elizabethan England kind of setting uh, with uh, with warring theater troops. Uh, so there's, there's one novella, uh, out, uh, from that series so far. Uh, and there should be a, a few more in the next year or so, hopefully. Yeah. You have quite a bit coming out. In the next I, year. I do, I do. And, um, like I, I write fairly quickly. Uh, I do have another book with, uh, tour.com. Uh, it was a, a two book contract, so there'll be one there, but we haven't announced that one yet. Uh, that's going to be the next, uh, sort of, uh, big project that I, uh, I'm facing. That's the, the next thing on my to-do list is writing that. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of like something else to tell you about, like what else I'm up to. That's not a spoiler or that I am actually allowed to talk about. <laughs> yeah. <yet>. Um, <laughs> Legally allowed yes. to say. Oh, another, another book that I, uh, have fairly high on my, uh, my to-do list is, uh, Another book about uh, Ilfing, who is a character from A Conspiracy of Truths and Choir of Lies, uh, fan favorite Ilfing, sad crying boy, uh, and <laughs> uh, some adventures that he goes on in regards to sort of his calling as uh, a chant, which is a wandering storyteller, uh, and 
if you've read uh, A Choir of Lies, like at the end of that, he kind of implies what that quest that he goes on might involve and what the the object of that quest might be. This is, this was um my first book of yours that I read, but mm. I definitely want to check those out now. Because, yeah, I, like I said, I really, really enjoyed it. Thank so. you. I, I mean, they're fine. Yeah. They're okay. <laughs> like, they, they're they're all right. Uh, no, but I, I, I do, I do uh, enjoy... Uh, sort of like looking at the world from different perspectives and uh in this book uh, a taste of golden iron like we're finally getting a glimpse of a thing that i've been setting up since uh a conspiracy of truths which is like the interweaving of uh the at least the the world setting because um like if you go back at if if you go on and read a conspiracy of truths now you'll hear uh references to Arashd. And uh, if you read Acquire of Lies, there's a reference to one of the big events that takes place in uh, A Taste of Gold and Iron because it, yeah, because like the world, the world is huge and news travels from place to place. And uh, what happens in one place might have a huge impact in uh, what happens on the other side of the world. So that's something that I I really like. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Cool. Uh, well, we always end all of our shows talking about what we are reading right now. So mm. what are you reading right now? Um, right now, I am absolutely obsessed with uh, Victoria Goddard's work. Uh, she's the friend whose uh, house I'm staying in right now. Um, I'm beta reading a, a big book for, for her. So that's kind of nice. like the top thing on my, my TBR list. Um, but I also have been reading, uh, a couple non-fiction books. I forget what, um, I believe it was called, uh, A Golden Thread. It's like about the history of textiles. Uh, and yeah, and that was really, really fascinating. Just looking at, um, how, uh, history has influenced the development of textiles and how textiles have, uh, influenced the, the development of history. Uh, I'm a, I do a lot of fiber arts for, for hobbies. And so that was like right up my alley. Uh, I, I really like books that sort of, um, like nonfiction books that have that kind of micro focus, like just a a very, very, very narrow focus. Uh, another one of my favorites is Salt, A World History, which is about, as you might guess, salt, uh, (laughs) or, or consider, consider the fork, which is about the history of tableware. Um, yeah, also very, very fascinating. Awesome. Well, uh, Alex, is there anything else that you would love the listeners to know about A Taste of Gold and Iron or anything else that uh, is going on for you? I don't think so. Uh, I hope that if any of you choose to to go read Gold and Iron after this, you will enjoy it. Uh, and if you would like to get updates about upcoming projects, uh, you can sign up for my newsletter or join my official Discord, uh, both of which are linked on my website. So Excellent. there you go. <laughs> okay, great. And we, in a, in a year and a half of doing this show, we have not developed a sign off. So that's it. Cool. Great. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Bye, everybody. <laughs> okay. Thank you for listening to No Page Unturned, part of the Geekly Inc. podcast family. If you like the show, please show us some love with a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at No Page Podcast. The show is edited by me, Steph Kingston. Our amazing theme music is by Bad Sparrow, and you can check them out at Bad Sparrow Music. And our cover art is by Chango Chimango, who you can check out on Instagram and Twitter at Chango Chimango.